This week, we're talking about photographing Iceland and chasing Aurora Borealis, and you're listening to the Landscape Photography Podcast. As always, thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. I'm just getting back from Iceland. In fact, I'm still jet lagged to prove it. And I thought that this week it would be a good thing to kind of talk about some of the uh, lessons learned, kind of some of the things that came up, recap the experience, and maybe talk about some of the things that we did to try to capitalize on the weather that was given to us. So that's what we're going to talk about this week. Before we get started this week, I do want to mention that several of the workshops have sold out since I've announced them last, but I do have one spot available uh, in 2017, and that is going to be for the Photographing Paradise in Kauai. So if you're interested in photographing Kauai, Beautiful, beautiful Kauai. If you want to spend time in flip-flops this December, come with me and Majid Batazagan and we'll take you to one of the most beautiful places on earth, Kauai in Hawaii. So with that, sit back, relax, and let's talk about Iceland and chasing weather. So one of the things that makes Iceland so much fun to photograph is also one of the things that makes it so incredibly challenging to photograph. That is the weather. The weather in Iceland is incredibly volatile, I guess would be the word. It can be very, very angry and uh, it's very common to get just sideways rain with, I don't know, 60 mile an hour sustained winds. And we definitely got a little bit of that on this particular tour. Having said that, we also were shooting a couple times in t-shirts and there was one night, which was actually the very first night I landed in Iceland. It was calm and still and the Aurora came out and I was out in a t-shirt photographing Aurora and it was probably one of the most amazing experiences of my life. So let's start from the beginning. The gear that I took, I took two cameras with me. I always take a backup camera body when I'm traveling a long distance like that. Took my 5D Mark IV. Took my 5D Mark III, never used a 5D Mark III, thankfully, because that means that I didn't destroy my 5D Mark IV, which is pretty much the main time I would ever resort to using my backup body. Uh, lenses, I took my 16 to 35 version 3, which I dropped and broke the filter thread on, casualty of war. And I brought the, with me the 14 millimeter f1.8 Sigma lens that I'm testing and I'm going to be doing a review on YouTube about. A uh, really cool lens. It's a big beefy lens, but I was so excited to photograph night skies with that lens and I was not disappointed. That lens performs really, really well. Uh, with stars and nightscapes. Also, my telephoto lens that I took was my 70 to 300 L. And I've talked about this before on probably, maybe not on this particular podcast, but I've talked about it a lot on YouTube and stuff. Uh, but I love that lens because I get an extra 100 millimeters as opposed to a 70 to 200. It's smaller than a 70 to 200. So it takes up less space in the bag, it's lighter. And, you know, it's a pretty sharp lens. It's not quite as sharp as my 70 to 200, but it's definitely professionally sharp. I never hesitate to use that lens over something else. This trip, I didn't bother taking my drone. There's a whole lot more signs that say no drones allowed uh, popping up all over Iceland, pretty much all over everywhere. And you have that choice of, well, do I just fly anyways and take the risk? Or, you know, do I find somewhere less cool to fly? And it just, you know... 
flying with a drone. It takes up a whole lot more space in the bag, starts getting really heavy. I didn't bother. Uh, so I didn't take the drone this time. I fly to Iceland. I get off the plane. I'm incredibly jet lagged because uh, like a dummy, I did not sleep on the plane. And a lot of times when you fly to Iceland, you land and you have the entire day ahead of you. So you land at like 630 in the morning with no sleep and you've already been up 24 hours and then you have the whole day ahead of you. So I slept in the car in some random parking lot for a while, slept a couple hours in my hotel once I was able to check into my hotel. And then I started getting Aurora alerts and we had a KP5, which is a pretty solid solar storm. And there was clear skies to be found, which is very difficult in Iceland. A lot of times having Solar activity is not the hard part. The hard part is getting clear skies to photograph that solar activity when you're in Iceland. So I got out of bed very grudgingly and I followed the cloud cover map to a place where I knew that or was predicted to be able to see a nice clear sky. That is the trick so many times, not just in Iceland, but no matter where you're photographing is to let the weather dictate where you go rather than go there and then just hope the weather works out. Um, especially in a place like Iceland where there's just photogenic stuff everywhere, you're better off to go to where you know the weather is going to be shootable and then just figure it out from there. So that's what I did. I actually used the official weather website for Iceland. It's like vidur.is or en.vidur.is. I think I'll just put a link in the show notes for that one. And you can find that at landscapephotographypodcast.com. But it's basically the official weather website for Iceland. One of the tabs that you can find there is total cloud cover, and you can use that to predict where you're going to be able to photograph the northern lights. I was really hoping to get some nice aurora um, over one of the major landmarks there, but I was not able to really make that happen because the skies just weren't happening there. And so my first shoot was basically at just Randomville, Iceland, where it was just like some guy's field with some rocks and it was not making for a very interesting shot without a human element so when you don't have a foreground element you make your own and you just stand in your frame and that's pretty much what i did for most of my aurora shots because i was not anywhere super iconic or interesting uh, but but just by putting yourself in the frame well, for one, you get that really cool Aurora selfie, which I think every every photographer wants a photo of themselves with Aurora over it. I mean, come on. It makes the coolest profile photo on social media ever. And, you know, it gave that human element to the frame and it just made it work out. When you're photographing Aurora, you can't use those typical settings that you would normally use for uh, just photographing the Milky Way or something. If you do like a 20 to 25 second long exposure, that Aurora is moving the entire time and it's going to blur out and you're going to get just kind of a green blob across your sky. So what you want to do is use those higher ISOs, but use a shorter shutter speed. That way you're freezing the motion in the Aurora, which is crazy to think about, but it really does move that fast. And the faster your shutter speed is, the more definition you're going to get in your Aurora and the better shot you're going to get as a result. So all of that was before the workshop even started. I showed up about two days before my workshop started and naturally I shared the Aurora images I got with uh, the group as they're flying over and I got them all excited and then they show up and we didn't get Aurora until after the workshop was ended. So it ended up being kind of mean that I did that and that's just how the weather works in Iceland sometimes. 
we had plenty of Aurora activity. We just didn't have enough sky openings to photograph it, especially when you're on that southern coast of Iceland. It tends to uh, get a lot more weather than the northern part. A little tip, if you are going for Aurora specifically, a lot of times you're going to have better luck in the north part of the island where the weather tends to be a little bit less volatile and angry than in the southern part of the island. So for the first couple days, we were definitely dealing with some brutal, brutal conditions. Day one, when we were up on the Snuffleupagus uh, Peninsula, <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce that. It starts with an S and I can't pronounce it, but uh, this is the peninsula that has Kirkufellfoss and the Black Church and, and one of the really cool, iconic uh, sea arches, the really photogenic part of the island. Unfortunately, we got just absolutely terrible weather. We had 60 mile an hour winds and sideways rain, and we did the best we could do, uh, which wasn't great. But that's the difficult part of leading a workshop like this sometimes is that in a place like Iceland, if you're staying in hotels, you're kind of locked into an area and you don't have a whole lot of flexibility with your itinerary. Unfortunately, that was our the only time during the workshop that we got to photograph Kirkufellfoss, which is one of the most photogenic parts of Iceland, um, and we had to do it in sideways rain and fog, and it wasn't the, the most amazing conditions, but it was a great learning experience. It, that's when you learn how to properly shoot in wet conditions. You learn how to protect your gear. You learn how to, uh, when the sky sucks, you just don't include it, and we did a lot of that on that first day because our sky was just a sheet of white because it was just falling rain. Not the best look in the world. But day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, day seven, they all got much, much better. We got just progressively better conditions throughout the workshop. Day two was uh, spent photographing Brewer Foss and Gull Foss and some of the waterfalls in that, in that Golden Circle area. Brewer Foss is just absolutely amazing. But one of the things that I really found kind of surprising is that I've been to Iceland five times now, and every time I go, there are more tourists than the time before. And I keep thinking, you know, well, we must be here during peak season. And then I come during another season, oh, this must be peak season because this is more than... And so in the past, when I went to Brewer Foss, we've been there and there would be like two or three other people. This time, there was probably 20 or 30, which is really, really crazy for such a small area, such a small out-of-the-way waterfall uh, there's nowhere to park because it's not like an established uh, tourist destination. It's kind of like this waterfall that happens to be going through a residential area. And so there's not really any kind of infrastructure for you to park there. And then you get there and there's just like cars scattered everywhere. It was It's kind of crazy. And it's also kind of the catch-22 of photography because the more amazing photos there are of a location, the more likely there are to be just tons of tourists that come later. And that's what's happened at Brewer Foss. But it's incredibly fun to photograph. It's incredibly photogenic. Um, you just have to put up with tourists now when you go there, unfortunately. A couple of the shoots that I was the most excited about was the black sand beaches at Vic. Finally, finally, this is time number five. This is the first time that I've been there when I've gotten decent conditions of Vic. Vic is just notorious for its horrible weather because it's the southernmost point of Iceland and the southern coast of Iceland in general gets a lot of weather. But being the southernmost point, Vic just gets the brunt of it. 
And this is the first time that I've been there when, you know, you could stand outside because, uh, I mean, okay, that's exaggerated, but it wasn't sideways rain. And we actually got some color in the sky twice, which was really cool. The black sand beach at Vic, I'm talking about the west side where you see lots of shots of the basalt columns and you have a couple sea caves and then you, you can get pretty close to those sea stacks. It's also a very dangerous place to photograph. During my last workshop, we had a couple guys get hit by a wave, broke a Gitzo tripod, killed a D810, and they were being careful, and that still happened. There's lots of people that go there and get washed out to sea, never to be seen from again. Very scary place to shoot, but a very, very interesting, fun place to shoot because of that interesting wave action you get. With my group, I took us fairly close to the, uh, the really interesting sea stacks that they have there. And we were photographing the waves crashing against the sea stacks because the tide was coming in. So they, the waves had some really nice energy and we probably had like, I don't know, seven to eight foot swells, something like that. And they were hitting those sea stacks with a good amount of energy. So when you're photographing stuff like that, you want to keep your shutter speed up generally, like, you know, above 200th of a second or so. And that's going to uh, maintain the detail in those splashes. And it's just going to give it a, a bit more of a frantic energy to the shot. When you start getting with those slower shutter speeds, a fifth of a second, a half second, a full second, um, that's going to give it this calming effect. And a calming effect would definitely be false advertising at this particular beach because uh, there's just so much energy and action on that particular beach. So yeah, Vic was really, really cool. And another thing I was really excited about was we finally got good light at Vesterhorn as well. Vesterhorn is uh, as far east as we went on this particular tour. It's a, basically a mountain outcrop that goes out towards the ocean where you can photograph it with several different types of uh, foregrounds there. You can get a reflection shot of the mountain reflecting off this kind of tidal flood area, or you can get these really cool black sand, sand dunes with the grasses growing out of them, or you can go down to the beach and get a beach leading up to it, or you can do what I found the most interesting, which was to go down to these rocks that are kind of on this little outcropping where you're getting waves crashing across the rocks, you get a beach in the background, and then you get um, this really photogenic mountain outcrop in your background. And we were lucky enough to get good light twice at Vesterhorn. And that was so cool because in previous experiences, that has been another place that has just eluded me because the weather is always so poor there. Um, but we got really great light there as well. Really cool experience. And all of that was because we were spending so much time really checking the weather and seeing where the weather is going to be the most favorable given where we could get to in a reasonable amount of time. And we let the weather dictate that day's itinerary. And I think that that is absolutely the key for making a successful uh, photo trip is to let the weather dictate what you do. On days where it looked like we were, we had a chance of getting either direct light or good sunsets, we made sure to make those the landscape photography days where we're photographing things like Vesterhorn or a seascape, something like that. But on the days when it was looking like we were going to have overcast hours and such and stuff like that, we spent those times photographing the things that didn't really require light, like a waterfall or like the iceberg lagoons or the glaciers. A lot of times when you're doing kind of a telephoto detail shot of a glacier, you don't want that harsh light. That, that harsh light is just going to be 
too much contrast for the scene. Uh, ideally, like you kind of want that uh, soft, soft box effect of an overcast day. And then you can add contrast to that and have full control over bringing out the tones and the details. Another thing you're going to notice when you're in Iceland, if you go, is that when the sun is out and it's actually hitting the icebergs in the iceberg lagoon, the color of the light is actually overpowering the color of the ice itself. But when the clouds come out and it becomes overcast, all of those big chunks of ice start to just glow with that, that inner blue that they have. And the color of the ice really dominates the shot. And for that reason, I actually prefer to photograph the lagoon when the sun is not out and when it's kind of overcast. That way, the color of the ice can really be the star of the show. So during the workshop, we, we definitely had like some reoccurring themes that came up. Uh, the first of which is that, and I preach this a lot, is to be very, very conscious and deliberate about the shutter speeds that you choose to photograph, especially when you have water in your frame. So many people, especially when they're photographing waterfalls and stuff like that, they just automatically go for that ultra slow shutter speed. And when you do that, it just turns your water to marshmallow and that water loses all of its movement and energy because you've blurred it too much. What I prefer to do is to try to find that sweet spot of where you're, you're definitely introducing motion and you're getting a nice um, appealing aesthetic look to your water, but you're maintaining fine detail where you're getting kind of the, uh, you know, all the lines and the texture in that falling water. Also, some waterfalls just look better with that really fast shutter speed and freezing the freezing the way that it's coming out in curtains like, you know, Skagafoss and Cellulansfoss, those big, massive waterfalls. Those are good examples of waterfalls that look really good at a fast shutter speed. So what I'll do is I'll get my composition set up and I'll do do kind of a whole array of shutter speeds at that same composition. I'll do somewhere. It's a longer shutter speed. Maybe the stream at the base of the waterfall looks really great at that one second or a half second or whatever, but maybe the waterfall itself looks great at like, you know, one eight hundredth of a second, really freezing the action there. And then I'll blend those two shutter speeds together in Photoshop and holding my composition on my tripod makes that a whole lot easier. Most of the waterfalls, if I wasn't positive which look I liked the best, I shot them at all the different shutter speeds, and then I'll just decide later. And that gives you a whole lot more creative control when you go to process your photos, because then maybe you can do something creative where, like, you know, when the water first starts falling off the waterfall, maybe you're doing that at, you know, kind of a slowest shutter speed, a fifth of a second, and then it slowly transition to, it transitions into that fast shutter speed as it falls, and you can get a really creative, unique result. The only difference is, like, it, it's kind of like shutter speed blending. And so that's one of the things I was really talking a lot about on the workshop as well. Another thing is just getting closer to your foregrounds. So often when you're shooting at chest height or whatever, uh, your your shot just kind of lacks that impact. But the closer you get to your foreground, get down a little bit lower. It simplifies your composition because your foreground's taking up more of it. And it just makes that foreground more impactful. And it kind of puts the viewer into, into the scene a little bit more. I was suggesting to people to get down lower. And, and that, that counts for like when you're in a water situation. It's scary. But one of the things that I was doing that people were kind of chuckling at me about, I would go handheld. I'll take my camera off my tripod and I'd wait for a wave to come in. And these particular waves had lots of like cool foam things going on and it was a black beach there at Vic and then um, as a wave came in I would just handhold and go down really low like 
two inches off the ground right next to that foam and rattle off some shots. And by doing that, you can kind of move with the waves rather than waiting for the waves to come to you. And you can get some really interesting perspectives and compositions doing it that way. And it's fun. You got to kind of make photography fun once in a while. Otherwise, what is the point? Because of the really wet weather that we had, some of the other things that we're doing just to manage the just general wetness of all of our gear. Every day we went out, our bags got soaked. So when we would go back to our hotel, it was like this very elaborate drying system where we were draping um, microfiber towels and lens cloths and our bags up against all the radiators and stuff. Uh, one of the things that I did that helped a lot was I brought a whole bunch of silica packets that you get when you buy electronics. They're the little packets that they stuff inside the battery compartments and stuff like that. I basically had like 30 of them in my camera bag and it kind of helped keep the inside of my camera bag dry ish. It still didn't keep it completely dry, but it helped a at least a little bit. Uh, my gear was getting very, very wet and you just kind of have to have a towel and dry it off periodically and don't let that water just sit for too long. And when you're in weather conditions that are changing pretty rapidly, you want to kind of keep your camera in the bag for a while. When you come back to your hotel, you don't just take your camera out of, out of the bag and set it on the counter. You want to leave it inside your bag, maybe unzip your bag. That way that all that condensation builds on the inside of your bag rather than on the outside of your camera or on the inside of your camera. And that's what's going to happen if you take a cold camera and set it on a nice warm nightstand or something when you get back to your hotel. So leave your gear inside the bag and let that condensation build on the inside of your bag rather than on the inside and outside of your camera. Tripod maintenance was a big deal on this one. In fact, I have a pretty crunchy tripod in the other room that's still drying out. When you're shooting in seascapes and around sand like we were, it's very difficult not to get sand and grit inside the threads of your tripod. And when you combine that with a wet uh, tripod leg, it means that you can't really tighten down as far as it's designed to, and you end up with legs that just don't lock quite all the way. Even my really nice, really right stuff tripods doing the exact same thing. All of us had tripods that were not really wanting to, legs that were not really wanting to lock up because we had so much grit in our, in our groove. So what you have to do after a trip like this, which I still have not done, but I should, is that you need to clean out all of those threads, take it apart, wipe off those threads, get all that grit out of there, wipe out the inside, and then ideally re-grease, put a little bit of uh, lubricant of some kind on your threads. That way they're operating nice and smooth. But even if you don't have that grease, it's still going to operate better if you just get all that grit out of there. After the tour ends, my buddy Ragnar and I, uh, we shot for a couple more days. Uh, day one after the workshop, we got skunked. We pretty much didn't get anything. But day two, we got a KP5 slash KP6, and we found just enough open sky to be able to photograph it. And if you've never seen a KP5 or a KP6 from somewhere like Iceland or Alaska or somewhere very far north, it is just jaw-dropping. It makes it really difficult to even take photos because you just want to stare at it. It is so beautiful. 
the way the lights just dance around the sky. In this case, it was 360 degrees all the way around us. I made it very difficult to even know which way to point the camera because you felt like no matter where you pointed it, there was something cool happening behind you. It was just so, so cool. We started at Kirkufelfoss and there's the clouds just kind of rolled in. We got some aurora, but uh, it was just like through this tiny gap in the clouds. So that wasn't really working out. So we drove to where the gap was a couple hours away, found a nice big gap. And we photographed that for probably a half hour before the clouds rolled in and, and snuffed it out. But such a cool, I would say even life-changing experience. It's just so amazing to see Aurora just dancing and filling the sky. And it is, it's so incredibly bright. It's not like when we get Aurora in my area where you kind of squint and you look and you're like, oh, there's kind of a glow there on the horizon. When you see Aurora in Iceland, and it's a big storm like that, you can be driving, you can have your headlights on, you know, you're staring at your dash lights, and then this big green flash just goes across the sky. It is so strong. There was a lot of times where I was getting all the way down to like ISO 2000 and still blowing out my highlights in the Aurora. It was just so, so bright and so strong. I highly recommend trying to get to one of those far north locations some some winter sometime and just try to take your chance and roll the dice and try to photograph the Aurora. It is so worth the effort and it's so beautiful. And it's one of those things that every photographer should have on their bucket list. So, so cool. Well, that's pretty much it. Very short episode this week. I am actually flying to Acadia in Maine tomorrow. I've only been home for like three days and now I'm leaving again. But I'm going to be at the Out of Acadia conference with uh, Aaron Bobnick and Thomas Heaton and Brian Peterson and Juan Pons and all these really great photographers. I'm super honored to be a part of such a cool thing. And we're going to be photographing Acadia National Park somewhere I've never seen. I've never actually been east of like Illinois. So this will be really cool. So yeah, I'm going to be doing that next week and I'm going to be recording a live episode. I think we're going to do it with Aaron Bobnick, Thomas Heaton and Brian Peterson next week. Don't hold me to it, but I'm hoping to do that. And we're going to record it live with uh, an audience and stuff. So we'll see you next week. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe to the show. And if you're interested in any of the show notes at all, you can find that at landscapephotographypodcast.com. Thank you guys so much, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.